welcome to No Nonsense Catholic, the penultimate uh, episode of No Nonsense for this year of our Lord 2023. Got one more coming up next week between Christmas and New Year's on the 27th. Looking forward to that. Uh, okay, just going to jump right in. Cardin Cardinal Wilton Gregory at uh, Catholic University earlier this month said, and I quote, tradition dies a slow death, sometimes a bloody death. And according to Phil Lawler at a uh, article on Catholic culture, he said, if tradition dies, so too does the authority of Cardinal Gregory. And you think about it, what, what authority does any bishop have apart from the fact that he represents the sacred tradition of the Catholic Church? by which he's understood to hold and teach the Catholic faith that comes to us from the apostles, that, in fact, he is a successor to the apostles. Now, at Vatican II, Dei Verbum taught that Scripture and tradition, capital T, tradition, quote, coming from the same divine wellspring in a certain way merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. Therefore, tradition and Scripture, quote, are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. Although this is clumsily worded, Vatican II essentially asserts what the faith has always taught. Scripture and tradition form one sacred deposit of faith. Now, to be fair, Philip Lawler says that Cardinal Gregory was not speaking of sacred tradition, but specifically about the traditional Latin Mass. In fact, it was in the context of a response to a question from a student who wanted to know what to tell people who ask why they can't have the traditional Mass on the Catholic University campus. And Cardinal Gregory answered that when Pope Paul VI introduced the Novus Ordo, quote, it was his desire, his intent, to say when that generation goes, then everyone will be in the new Mass, unquote. With Traditionis Custodes, he continued, Pope Francis is, quote, trying to complete what Paul VI began, that is to put one ritual, the new rite, as the dominant rite, but with exceptions, modest exceptions. In other words, no more traditional Matin Mass at all outside the ghetto of special parishes, parishes set up to isolate the incalcitrant from the general Catholic population. Lawler says that to take careful note of the adjective that the Cardinal used, that the Novus Ordo is dominant, the dominant right. But nobody disputes that. Uh, I, today, I enter my 65th year. I'm 64 years old today. Surely among Catholics my age and younger, and that, by the way, represents 80% of Catholics in the United States, only the smallest fraction have ever had any direct experience of the traditional Latin Mass at all. So the Novus Ordo is certainly dominant. But Lawler asks, does that answer the question of why the traditional Mass can't be celebrated at the Catholic University campus? And he points out the, the wonderful irony <laughs> that Cardinal Gregory came to Catholic University to talk about the value of diversity. And apparently he values diversity in the same way that the pigs of Orwell's animal farm valued equality. You just have to remember that some animals are more equal than others. Now, the cardinal revealed that when he became archbishop, the traditional mass was available in several places in D.C. Quote, he said, Cardinal Hickey instituted it here in 1988 in three places. And 1988, by the way, that's when John Paul II granted his entirely unnecessary indult to celebrate the traditional Mass. He goes on, then all of a sudden, it was growing, and it was in eight places. So I went back to the Hickey number. See, once again, Lawler's pointing out that the Cardinal's language is telling. 
you know, at a time when mass attendance was already in steep decline, Gregory says, quote, all of a sudden that the traditional mass was growing. But why? And, and what, what, what would account for that growth? And he uh, provided a patently false answer. He said, in many of the places where it grew, the Tridentine rite, it grew because priests promoted it and not because, at which point he broke off his sentence and started over. Why? Well, as Mr. Lawler points out, what he was obviously about to say is that people didn't want it. But that's nonsense. Because if nobody wanted the traditional mass, the question he was answering about the traditional mass would not have been asked. Traditionis custodies would never have been written. The whole issue wouldn't even exist. If people didn't want it, you wouldn't have to deny it to them. So what did the cardinal say? He said, oh, it's the priest's fault. Quote, he says that, well, I'm, I'm not quoting now. He says that they alone furnished the support for the traditional mass. In other words, in a parish where the pastor offered the traditional mass, now here's the quote, he created the need in places where there wasn't a need there. <laughs> Can that be right? Obviously, no Catholics required to attend the traditional mass. In fact, it's downright discouraged. So if Gregory's right, no one would have come to those masses in the first place. And so Mr. Lawler gives the lie to the Cardinal's outrageous claim by asking the obvious question, would Catholic families begin traveling long distances to attend the traditional mass, as many still do, if there wasn't a need there? And then he suggests what I was already thinking, maybe some priests really did create a need for the traditional mass because of their unrelenting abuse of the Novus Ordo. That was my experience. It was liturgical abuse that triggered a thirst for reverence. And, and a, a, a reverence, a thirst that the, the disordered liturgies at, at the typical parish could not satisfy. And that's why I sought out the traditional mass in the first place. And even though it's been virtually outlawed, the demand for it persists. And when Cardinal Gregory says that the Novus Ordo is the dominant right, he's merely stating the obvious, but he, he didn't begin to answer the question. Right After the publication of the New Order of the Mass in 1969, Cardinal Ottaviani, who was Prefect Emeritus of the Holy Office, later called the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, presented to Pope Paul VI a document that was written by some Roman Catholic theologians, including Archbishop Lefebvre, called A Short Critical Study of the Novus Ordo Mise, which became popularly known as the Ottaviani Intervention. And in the introduction, Cardinal Ottaviani said he opposed the imposition of the Novus Ordo primarily because the new mass, quote, represents a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the mass as formulated in session 22 of the Council of Trent, unquote. Now, for the better part of 60 years, no, well, 50 years, Novus Ordo apologists have claimed that Cardinal Ottaviani was off his rocker, that the theology of the new mass is identical to the traditional mass, that the various liturgical changes are merely accidental, that they're, they're, there's no change in the substance. Now, I believe that by applying the hermeneutical continuity, the Novus Ordo can be understood and celebrated in a way that's consistent with the traditional theology of the church. Now, then I always certainly understood it that way. And that's why I was so upset by abuses of the new liturgy, precisely because they are abuses. But the promoters of the hermeneutic of rupture, and let's be honest, that, that includes all of the primary actors in the current pontificate, they do, in fact, understand the new Mass as an expression of a whole new theology, including but not limited to Pope Francis's prefect for divine worship and the sacraments, Cardinal Roche, who has stated explicitly that the traditional Mass does not express the theology of the Church. Why? Because, and I quote 
the theology of the church has changed. I submit to you that that you can read the documents of Vatican II, especially Sacrosanctum Concilium, until your eyes bleed without finding any justification for some new theology of the liturgy, much less a mandate for a new order of the Mass, because it's simply not there. But Cardinal Ottaviani has been completely vindicated. And Paul VI obviously was determined to pursue his own agenda. And as those who have eyes to see, Pope Francis and his cohorts are doing their damnedest to finish the job. So Cardinal Gregory says, well, traditional dies a slow death, sometimes a bloody death. But are there not signs of life? What about the average Catholic in the pew, one who simply wants a reverent liturgy? Which, by the way, as Catholics, is our right. Well, I've told my story often enough, but I ran across something the other day, uh, just yesterday, in fact, on the 18th, uh, an opinion piece by Cheryl Colmer on the Crisis Magazine website called Choosing Between New and Old. And she begins by saying, if I could only pick one or the other, I'd have to say I'm a Novus Ordo Catholic. It's the Mass I've attended for most of my 65 years. Okay, this is the lady the same age as me. Uh, but she was a cradle Catholic and not a convert. She also says anyone my age can recite encyclopedically the liturgical abuses they've seen because they were legion. But she maintains that even in the midst of the turmoil, she has attended Novus Ordo Masses that were, quote, so lovely they made me cry, unquote. Masses replete with edifying homilies and polished lectors and good music performed well, et cetera, et cetera. But good, bad, or indifferent, she points out that until 2007, for most Catholics, the Novus Ordo was the only game in town. And then she gets to the heart of her essay when she says, as long as the church validates the Novus Ordo, I can be sure that I am present at the same holy and redemptive sacrifice as the traditional Mass. Jesus is one and the same. I have no uneasiness about one form being, quote-unquote, more valid than the other. The genius, she says, of, of Pope Benedict's Samorum Pontificum was to allow us to have both. And I, I hardly agree, as if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that I you know, often you know, explain that I have been witness personally, to the mutual enrichment that Benedict XVI anticipated when I visited parishes all over the Anglosphere, four continents, that, that offered both forms of the Roman Rite. And that's why Pope Francis and company want it quarantined, because it rubs off on regular Catholics. Ms. Colmer continues, all my favorite saints, she says, from St. Clair to St. Maximilian Kobe, worshipped God in the traditional Mass. So how can it possibly be for me a source of, vision, uh, of division or distress? Cardinal Roche, call your office. Conversely, she says, my favorite popes, uh, John Paul II and Benedict XVI, celebrated the Novus Ordo. So how can I vilify it? She's clearly taking a balanced approach. But what she says next is what intrigued me. And we'll talk about that when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. So stay tuned to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Okay, so Cheryl Calmer, after giving us her bona fides as a Novus Ordo Catholic, who clearly believes both forms of the Roman Rite are equally valid, goes on to say, it intrigues me that for some reason the Novus Ordo opened the door to brutalism in art and architecture, minimalism in church decor, childishness in music. Why is that? She asks, why are churches built before the Novus Ordo marvels of carved wood and marble, filigree, domes, frescoes, colorful saints, flying buttresses, and most importantly, representational art, while churches built after 1969 feature minimalism, brutalism, blank walls, low ceilings, reverberating acoustics that make it hard to hear, and strange figures in art and statuary that bear little resemblance to humans. Was it just the spirit of the times? Or something about the Novus Ordo itself that entered through the open window and ransacked our churches? She wonders why we have ad-libbing priests. She asked, why do we have lay readers, quote, who blithely mutilate the words of scripture in the Novus Ordo when readings in the former order were intoned by seminary-educated men who were not seeing those words for the first time as they opened the lectionary? Why are lay people in all stages of dress lined up to, to handle, I think it should be states of dress, lined up to handle the sacred vessels in the Novus Ordo when every person on the altar in the former order was robed or vested. And I would add that none but consecrated hands ever touched the Holy Eucharist. She says there seems to be something about the Novus Ordo that allows for desacralization. Is it the Latin language itself that keeps the traditional Latin mass holy? Or the weight of history? Millions of Catholics having worshipped in exactly the same way for over a thousand years. I haven't a clue, she says but it is a question worth pondering. So what, what and I would, I would, uh, you know, offer a, a suggestion, perhaps there, the fact that there's a bunch of modernism in the church after the, uh, you know, the, 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 the phys physical, visible part of the church is, has something to do with the modernism that's inherent in the right. Anyway, she relates how she and a group of friends recently went on, on a pilgrimage to some places near them, that had uh, recently made news in the Catholic world. So Benedictine Abbey in Gower, Missouri, where they have the incorrupt remains of Sister Wilhelmina. Uh, St. Mary's, Kansas, where construction was recently completed on a magnificent church uh, dedicated to the Immaculata. And the Clear Creek Abbey in Oklahoma, where she said, we heard the brothers were more or less hand-building their church and raising their own food. And she says, we're just, we were just looking for pilgrimage destinations where great things were happening. But we didn't realize until we got there that all three sites are traditional Latin mass communities. And she goes on to wax eloquent about what they discovered there. Sublime liturgy, magnificent architecture, beautiful music, holy communities. And full disclosure, she said that she only discovered when they got there that the heavenly, that's her word, the heavenly Immaculata Church in St. Mary's is SSPX. But she says, I learned that it is permissible for a Roman Catholic to receive communion there. Okay. Uh, newsflash, members of the SSPX are, in fact, Roman Catholics, okay? Uh, anyway, she goes on to identify other signs of life, she says, like the recently completed shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother in, in, Rother in Oklahoma, which is not a traditional mass church, and an oversort of parish in Plano, Texas, that demolished the, the brutalist concrete bunker of a church that they used to have and is about to dedicate a gorgeous Italian basilica-style sanctuary. And, and she points out they did the bulk of their capital campaign during the lockdown. 
So she says all the new life and beauty in the church is, is not located in traditional Latin mass communities. But at the same time, we regularly read about Novus Ordo parish churches that are closing for lack of interest. She says, quote, I don't think there's any denying that the traditional Latin mass has vitality, a sense of beauty and fittingness, and the youth that guarantees longevity. And she's right, of course. Today's traditional Latin mass communities are chock full of young families. She says, I don't see them being crushed. They are instead attracting the attention of those looking for the heart and spirit of Catholicism. And I would say finding it there. And so she concludes, while I'm a Novus Ordo Catholic, I see a future in the traditional Latin Mass. And she passes over any, any canonical arguments about whether the, the traditional Mass could ever be lawfully suppressed and so on. And just to observe that there are signs of a flourishing springtime in traditional Latin Mass communities. And that this surge happened long before Traditionis Custodis, and so it can't be chalked up to rebellion. There is, she says, an organic growth of remarkable beauty. And if that is a sign of God's favor, then the traditional Latin mass in its communities will certainly survive the passing storm. And that's a positive attitude, which I, I think that's wonderful. And, and I share it at least as much as, try and share it as much as I can. And what she describes are, in my humble opinion, signs of the coming restoration of the church, a restoration prophesied by Our Lady in Quito, Ecuador for years ago, 40 or first centuries ago, rather, uh, that is the triumph of her immaculate heart that she then predicted to Sister Lucy at Fatima in the last century. And those signs were visible. They were many and varied during the pontificate of Benedict XVI, I think because Pope Benedict understood better than anybody what that what St. John Paul II taught on paper needed to be implemented on the ground and in the pew. And we know that he acknowledged the perennial value of quo primum and recognized the right. And this is important, not granted permission, but it insisted that it is the right of all Roman Catholic priests to celebrate the traditional Latin mass. And suspending someone's right without a serious reason is a grave injustice, which he sought to correct. An injustice that has been resurrected in our time. He was also instrumental in implementing the corrected vernacular translation of the Novus Ordo according to Liturgium Authenticum, and would likely have achieved his long-held dream of the so-called reform of the reform by implementing the instruction Redemptionis Sacramentum. Sadly, though, this was not to be. Though I believe that his implementation has only been delayed. If you read the book The Power of Silence by Cardinal Seurat, uh, the, the prefect emeritus of the Congregation of the Doctrine for or the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Sacraments. He put it very boldly. And he said, What I'm about to say now does not enter into contradiction with my submission and obedience to the supreme authority of the church. I desire profoundly and humbly to serve God, the church, and the Holy Father with devotion, sincerity, and filial attachment. But this is my hope. If God wills, when he may will, and how he may will in the liturgy, the reform of the reform will take place. In spite of the gnashing of teeth, it will take place, because the future of the church is at stake. And unfortunately, we know that, that uh, Francis and company have done their best to derail the reform of the reform and undo the good fruits of Benedict XVI's pontificate in, in their zeal to institutionalize the hermeneutic of rupture. 
which uh, Bishop Joseph Strickland correctly identified as a program of destruction. And if that's what got him canceled, as they say, then he's joined the ranks of Saints John Fisher and Thomas More and others who were persecuted for telling the truth. And that's no nonsense. Now, earlier this month, nine Italian Catholic literati weighed in on the current state of affairs under Pope Francis, and in the process coined the term sedimene fregissimo. Perhaps you've not heard that before. Sedimene fregissimo. It's an Italian neologism based on the words sedevacantism, which means holding that the chair of Peter is vacant because the current occupant's a heretic, and mene frega, an Italian phrase that expresses I don't care, with the added uh, superlative suffix issimo, right? And in Italian, that means you know, uh, like very much so. So Bella is beautiful, but bellissima, oh, that's very beautiful. So sedimene fregissimo is meant to convey, I don't care at all whether the Holy See is vacant or not. And, and what's that about? Okay, well, in the preamble to their statement, uh, the drafters say, quote, aware of the unparalleled crisis that has been wounding the church for a long time now, and noting that among the good, the quarrels, divisions, and endless diatribes often has as their object the state of the Petrine Sea and of the entire ecclesiastical hierarchy, as private persons, clergy and lay people, theologians, philosophers, canonists, jurists, and historians, we have unanimously drafted the following. And what follows is 17 points that largely resonate with what traditional Catholics have maintained for decades. And I won't go through it point by point, but essentially, they say there is a profound crisis in the church because many of the words and deeds of Pope Francis are profoundly incompatible with the Catholic understanding of the purpose and limits of the papacy. And they make the point that well-meaning Catholics can honestly and faithfully disagree and come to different conclusions about the significance of this unfortunate crisis. Therefore, they say, and I quote, Due to the involvement of the Roman See itself in the crisis, it is legitimate to question the state of the papal see. It is a legitimate opinion to believe Jorge Mario Bergoglio is a true pope, albeit seriously heterodox. heterodox. It is a legitimate opinion to consider Jorge Mario Bergoglio an illegitimate occupant of the Holy See and or as an anti-pope. It is a legitimate opinion to consider the see vacant. It is a legitimate opinion to believe the headquarters is only physically occupied. It is a legitimate opinion to consider the crisis of the Roman See as one of an heretical pope. It is legitimate to consider the crisis of the Roman See as one of a schismatic pope. It is also a legitimate opinion to believe in the presence of two churches behind the appearance of a single church. In the post-conciliar church, there would be both the true Church of Christ, the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church, and a Gnostic Neo-Church with the Pope at the top of both, so that the Pope would be the vicar of Christ, but also the head of a new faith, of a new cult, a new church. And finally, it's legitimate, a legitimate opinion to consider the post-conciliar popes to be true popes, even if marked by non-Catholic thought. Unquote. See, they believe that any of these many different beliefs may be legitimately held, but obviously not all at the same time, because they contradict each other. And there's the law of contradiction states that uh, that they can't all be true. Only one can be true, and maybe not even one. <laughs> so the truth must ultimately be determined by the supreme authority of the church. And until then, they say, sedimene frigissimo. 
Now, I must say, though, that they're actually kind of late to the game. You know, I started attending the traditional mass at the turn of the century. And by 2002, I wrote something similar in regard uh, to what was coming out of the Vatican at the time. I quote on my on a night's blog, now defunct, quote, if anything traditional comes out of Rome, chances are I'm already doing it. And when something that contradicts tradition comes out of Rome, I will have nothing to do with it. End quote. That's yours truly 21 years ago. And that hasn't changed. The crisis in the church will continue to worsen until we return to orthodoxy and discipline. So what is a Catholic to do in such troublesome times? Well, the best I can do is offer the advice of St. Vincent of Lorraine. What then shall the Catholic do if some portion of the church detaches itself from communion of the universal faith? Or if some new contagion attempts to poison no longer a small part of the church, but the whole church at once? Then this great concern, his great concern, will be to attach himself to tradition, which can no longer be led astray by any lying novelty. And that's no nonsense. Hey, when we come back, the gospel for the fourth Sunday of Advent and the necessity of penance. So stay tuned to that. We'll be right back with more No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, good to be with you uh, again today. And I think I've ranted enough for, for one episode. Now we're going to talk about the upcoming gospel for this Sunday. And by the way, going to the Vigil Mass of Christmas on Sunday does not fulfill your Sunday obligation. You must either go to the Vigil or the Sunday Mass for the fourth Sunday of Advent and go to the Christmas Mass, either the Vigil or on the 25th. Going to Mass twice in a row is not going to kill you, and it's and it's obligatory. Uh, and, but th for those of you that uh, find that burdensome, you'll be happy to know that next week, um, the, the 1st of January, falling on a Monday, is not considered a holy day of obligation in the United States. So you don't have to go on the 1st of January, but you do have to go this Sunday for the 4th Advent, 4th Sunday of Advent, and again for Christmas. Okay. The Gospel for the fourth Sunday of Advent, taken from Luke 3, 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and Philip, his brother, tetrarch of Iturea, and the country of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilinus, Annas, and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zachary, in the desert. And he came into the country about the Jordan, preaching the baptism of penance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the sayings of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways plain and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, what immediately stands out to me in this passage is this detailed description of the time in which John began his ministry. Because it's contrary to Luke's typical style, you know, enumerating all of the religious and civil princes in office at the time. But he did this in first place so that it could not be denied that this was truly the time and the year in which the promised Messiah appeared in the world. 
not long ago in a galaxy far, far away, but very specifically at this moment in the first century. The Messiah that John baptized, that the Heavenly Father declared to be his beloved son. And it also shows the fulfillment of the prophecy of the patriarch Jacob from Genesis 49.10, that when the scepter would be taken away from Judah, that is, when the Jews would no longer have a king from their own tribes, the Savior would come. Scripture says the word of the Lord came to John, which, of course, he did literally. But it also means that John was commissioned by divine inspiration to preach penance and announce to the world the coming of the Lord. He had prepared himself for this work by a life of seclusion and penance and, and prayer and intimacy with God. And, and the one thing we can take away, if, you know, to apply to our own is not to try and impose ourselves into some office least of all a spiritual office, but to wait for the call from God and to prepare ourselves to receive the necessary light by prayer and a holy life. John the baptizer says, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight his paths, which means that we should prepare our hearts for the worthy reception of Christ by penance, amendment, and the resolution to lead a pious life in the future. And so we should fill every valley, that is, you know, give up all our carnal sentiments, and, and elevate our, our, our sentiments, direct them to God, who's the highest good, and desire uh, his grace and growth in virtue. The mountains and hills should be brought low. That's our pride and ambition and our stubbornness. We need to be humbled. The crooked shall be made straight, so our you know, ill-gotten goods should be restored, or, or any hypocrisy and malice, uh, double-dealing be renounced. Our intentions turn to God. That's what repent means. It means to turn back to God. And the rough ways shall be made plain. That means if we expect the Lamb of God to dwell in our hearts, we should you know, remove from our hearts any anger or revenge or impatience. And it reminds us that our Lord put to shame the pride of the world and its false wisdom by building the church on the apostles, who because of their poverty and their simplicity may be considered those low valleys all the way to heaven, formerly so rough and difficult to tread because of the lack of grace is now by his grace made smoother and easier. In Luke 13.3, our Lord says, unless you do penance, you shall all likewise perish. This is the key to everything that I just said, all these preparations, it comes down to this. If we're not in a state of grace, when you depart this life, we shall be banished from the face of God for all eternity. We will inhabit the abode of, of despair and desolation everlasting shipwrecks, the glorious identity for which we were created lost, never enter the port of heaven, but be drowned in the waters of destruction. Unless you do penance, you shall all likewise penish. So as soon as you commit a mortal sin, if you should have the unfortunate uh, occasion for that to happen, when that happens, you fall out of the state of grace and into the state of sin, out of the friendship of God and into that of his enemies. And should we die unrepentant in that state, there's no remedy. The door of salvation is shut, and we are left in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Penance is the only way of recovering the state of grace. Unless you do penance, you shall all likewise perish. And what is penance? Well, it's a return to God by sincere sorrow for sin, by the firm uh, purpose of amendment never to offend God again by any mortal sin. and in these dispositions, to confess our sins to a priest who will grant absolution for them. 
you know, the principal part of the penance, uh, of penance for, for the priest is acting in persona Christi to grant absolution. And for the penitent, it's true contrition. It's about turning away from sin and turning towards God with a desire to, to serve and love him uh, to the best of our ability. Now, I just said nothing will take the place of this true repentance. You can do anything else and it won't help. Right? There's no way to work your, your way into God's good graces. Uh, you know, and, and unless you do penance, you will all likewise perish. You know, some people are foolish enough to think that they can purchase salvation with money. You know, and surely we should give alms. You know, we, we have to, to, to support the church and take care of our neighbor. But but do you think Almighty God gives a hoot about money? For one thing, everything in the universe is his already. What did Jesus say? What doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world but suffer the loss of his own soul? If you're in mortal sin, if you, God forbid, in the habit of committing mortal sin, all the gifts in the world won't buy you out. Right, it's only the graces won on the Holy Cross. But it's only by Jesus having paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Amen, I say to you, says our Lord Jesus, unless you be converted, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, that was the delusion of the Pharisees. And remember what our Lord said to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you tithe mint and anise and cumin and, and have left the weightier things of the law, judgment and mercy and faith. The Pharisee that went up to the temple to pray evidently thought he was in God's favor. Oh, I fast twice a week. I, I pay tithes on all I possess. But did he repent? Did he deplore his sins? Did he confess, resolve to forsake them, serve God? Beg for the grace to keep his good resolutions? Well, evidently not, because he wasn't justified. Are there not some who try to convince, uh, you know, or try and solve their consciences by submitting or substituting something for obedience to God's commands? You know, well, I'll go to the church all the, uh, often, and when I'm at church, I'll ask forgiveness. I'll acknowledge myself as a sinner and, and, and say some prayers. I'll drop something in the poor box. God won't be so hard on me. You know, I, I, I'll just continue in that one sin, right? Just just, just the, the drunkenness or the impurity or, or this whatever bad habit. The temptation's too hard for me to resist. I'll do better eventually, but I'm no worse than anybody else. That's extreme folly. You can't make any bargain with the infinite majesty because he sees through all your hypocrisy. He alone actually sees the heart. You know, I, I, I remember talking to, to some folks about had fallen away from going to Mass. They said, you really should go back to, to Mass. You should go back to the Holy Sacrifice. And they said, well, God knows my heart. And I said, I have terrible news for you. God knows your heart. Be not deceived, for God is not mocked. If you are weak and temptation is strong, then ask for help. Beg for the graces to, to be lifted up on your feet and don't delude yourself with the idea that it's all right and that you can continue on in your sin, much less have, have that sin blessed. This is what God says. Cast away from you all your prevarications in which you have transgressed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Turn away, turn away from your sinful ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And today, that's us. This, this, it is to do penance. And, and this is, your own heart tells you, you know that it's necessary. If you've turned away from God to follow your own 
desires, your own lusts, wickedness, you know you can't be restored to his favor as long as you stay in that evil disposition. You know, if you had an enemy who hated you, you might forgive him for God's sake, but you couldn't trust him or act towards him as if he were friendly to you. God knows all things, and if you hate and despise him, he cannot, in justice and truth, forgive you. But if you do penance, then he's only too glad to forgive. Scott Hahn said something, I'll never forget it. He said, God wants to forgive you more than you want to be forgiven. When the impious man shall do penance for all the wickedness he hath committed, says the Holy Scriptures, he shall live and shall not die. I will not remember anything of all the wickedness he hath committed. In the justice he shall do, he shall live. All right, another reason why penance is necessary is a consideration of our own good and our own happiness. Every creature seeks the good. That's what Aquinas tells us. Uh, it follows its instincts to seek the good all the time. Reasonable, being, reasonable beings, right? Human beings, angels, seek what they esteem as the highest good. Unfortunately, they often cheat themselves. They sacrifice real happiness for, for a mere pretense of happiness. How often is murder committed to gratify a, mom a momentary passion of anger and a lifetime of misery to pay for it? Disease and death are consequences of the sin of a moment. People sacrifice life itself over their boasting. It's an awful thought to be deprived of, of heaven forever because we made our own bed and we have to lie in it. After this, stay with us. Virtual is powerful. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. This fourth Sunday of, or last, uh, rather, the third Sunday of Advent was called Stir Up Sunday in England because it was the day when they would start uh, the Christmas pudding. No kidding. And, and, you, and you have to stir it from time to time. It was a reminder. But it's really called Stir Up Sunday after the gradual. Um, it says, Alleluia, Alleluia, stir up thy might, O Lord, and come that thou mayest save us. And God has come to save us, and he'll return at the end of time to save us. But if we expect to be saved, we must do penance. I've talked about why, but what is it? What is it to do penance? It is to wake up out of our dream to a, a knowledge of ourselves. It's to see ourselves the way we really are, as God sees us. And it's a blessing. And I'm thankful to God we should be for it. This is what examination of conscience is about. It might be painful, but it's a happy pain. It's like, it's like medicine that brings health and strength and cheerfulness and joy. Imagine if your mom and dad never corrected you or punished you in your childhood, but let you just do whatever you wanted. Now, you'd pay for it the rest of your life. You would never cease to blame them for, for this you know, false kindness. God inflicts pain on us like a good father to bring us to our senses. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I continue in thy paths, says the scripture. And being in, in sight of our own sins, being helpless, moves us to cry out to God. In my father's house, there is abundance of all things, and I am perishing with hunger. This is the prodigal son. 
What does he say? And it's the same with God. He is my father after all. He must have a father's heart. I'll go back to him. I'll forsake my evil ways. It's all I can do. I regret the past with all my heart, but it's past. It can't be lived over again. And for the future, I will not do as I have done. I'll be faithful to the best of my power with the help of thou, uh, thy grace. You know, to feel this desire and this weakness at the same time, that's what, what you know, uh, allows the poor soul, the repentant soul, to pour forth prayers and supplications for grace, grace and strength. To pray earnestly in the church, at home, uh, you know, at work, at rest, night and day. All those prayers are heard and grace is given. And we cooperate with sorrow for our sins, with firm resolution of amendment, make our confession, receive absolution, and commence again to lead the life of a sincere Christian. I'll give you an example from, from the scriptures. King David is a man after God's own heart, obeyed God, loved him, prayed to him. But one time he forgot about this and he sinned grievously, tempted by lust, guilty of adultery, and then murder to cover it up. And God permitted this as an example to teach us to be watchful and to keep away from temptation. David remained a while impenitent, as you recall, until the prophet Nathan came to him and charged him with a sin. You recall, he described David's conduct in a parable about the meanness and wickedness of another man. And David exclaimed, such a man is not fit to live. And then Nathan said, thou art the man. And David was struck to the heart and the scales fell from his eyes and he cried out in sorrow, I have sinned against the Lord. There was sincere penance. And how quickly forgiveness followed. Nathan says, the Lord hath put away thy sin. But David did penance. He kept a fast for seven days in sackcloth and ashes, spoke to no one, did nothing but pray and lament. And when the child that he and Bathsheba conceived died, he accepted this as coming from God's hands with complete resignation. And his whole life afterwards was kept in sorrow and remembrance. And he accepted every affront in humility as sent by God because he deserved it. Even when his own son tried to usurp the throne. Even when the northern kingdoms broke away, he cried, I acknowledge my iniquity and my sin is ever before me. I have watered my couch with my tears and I have no rest day and night. Have compassion on me, O Lord, according to thy mercy and according to the multitude of thy mercies, blot out all my iniquities. Such should be the way of penitence for us, the way of penance in all our lives, to regret our sins, and never forget our sinfulness. You don't need to dwell on your past sins. In fact, you shouldn't. But always be prayed to cleanse from them more thoroughly, to strive to accept God's, you know, from God's hands all the trials, all the troubles that, that he shall see fit to allow in our lives. That is how we will be acceptable to God. That is how you pass your days in peace and tranquility. That's how you receive your reward in heaven. That's how you deal with it when, when your kids fall away, when they've gone astray, and you can do nothing but pray and do penance. When you, when you have some real trial in overcoming sin and finally overcome it. A good conscience is the key to peace in this life.
And that comes from penance and absolution and more penance. And that's no nonsense. You know, I mentioned at the top of the show that in order to navigate the crisis in the church, you have to follow the advice of St. Vincent of Loren and attach yourself to tradition, talking about signs of life in the church. Well, where do you find the tradition of the church? Where do you learn that? Now, I've talked the last couple of weeks about how old catechisms retain their value because the doctrines of the church do not change. Uh, I've also, you know, I've used um, um, many catechisms, uh, you know, and being a catechist for, I don't know, you know, a long time now, a diocesan catechist for 15 years, uh, and in my work as an apologist and an evangelist for St. Joseph's uh, Communications and, and Virgin Most Powerful, Catholic Resource Center, Augustine Institute, etc. Always keeping that in mind. And and I've been endorsing Bishop Schneider's new catechism. Gosh, I, I really like it. It's called Credo, and, and it's set up like a traditional catechism, both in format, but more importantly, in content. And some of that content would, is, is going to be shocking to the average Catholic because, you know, they, they've lost sight of what the church really teaches. You know, and um, I saw an article the other day from Aaron Seng, uh, and I've had Mr. Seng on the program before talking about his Tradivox project, uh, the Tradivox being a Latin word that comes from the Latin for tradition and voice. And Tradivox is a hardbound collection of classic catechisms, which, as the title implies, represent the voice of tradition. And his article explains how uh, Bishop Schneider's new catechism fits into that mold. And you can read it for yourself. It was actually uh, published or posted on the Crisis Magazine website back in November. And I'll have the link in the show notes, but it was called A Catechism to Reclaim Catechisms, a, a ringing endorsement. Um, and it was compiled by Bishop Athanasius Schneider. He says, quote, to respond to the requests of many sons and daughters of the church who are perplexed by the widespread doctrinal confusion and to offer a guide to the changeless teaching of the church, which, you know, he contends that, or Mr. Sen contends that amidst the, the doctrinal madness that presently afflicts the church, this new catechism is itself a sign of hope for the future. And it's not hard to demonstrate this, this doctrinal madness he alludes to. Just consider the official Vatican documents from the, the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith formally adopting the, the unheard of novel categories of transgender persons and homosexual persons into the church's language, promoting the unheard of official blessing of irregular marriages and homosexual unions and shades of Karl Marx, the Pope himself, calling for a, quote, courageous cultural revolution, unquote, in Catholic theology. You can't make this stuff up. And that's just in the last two months. <laughs> but, you know, Mr. Seng points out we've been living in a crisis of catechesis for 50 years. Well, that's nothing new. Uh, many people, myself included, have lamented the poor catechesis of the last generation. But he says the problems go deeper than poor teaching. He says, although curiously underdocumented, it is a plain and printed fact that a grave rupture has occurred in the church's catechetical manuscript tradition. For nearly 60 years, scores of faulty catechisms have appeared under Catholic auspices, containing manifest errors in faith or morals or both, from encouraging sexual deviancy to denying the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. An alarming number of such works have been approved by bishops and employed in schools, parishes, and seminaries around the world since the close of the Second Vatican Council, furthering the catechetical deformation of three generations. And he gives a number of frankly shocking examples. And he points out, in such peri periods, the measurement of any given book against what came before remains essential. 
Is it tradition? Then look no further, right? If it's not, then move on. A comparison made even more pressing, he says, with the church's living office holders when they uh, neglect to guard and communicate the deposit of faith. And that's why in the new year, Virgin Most Powerful Radio will be offering online classes to provide solid, traditional, catechetical answers to the most important questions facing Catholics today, the things that the faithful Catholics are really asking about that the Church isn't addressing. You know, as I said, as an official diocesan catechist of many years, I've always used a variety of traditional catechisms to teach the unchanging faith to contemporary Catholics. I, I used uh, my Catholic faith from 1949 just the other night, talking about the Eighth Commandment. By the way, I'm going to talk about that next week, what I, what I had to say about the Eighth Commandment in relation to the whole transgender movement. But this is why Terry Barber personally asked me to produce a series of online classes for VMPR to address these questions, to answer from the definitive teaching of the Church these crucial questions that are facing Catholics today. Also, um, we got one more show in December, but beginning in January, No Nonsense Catholic will adopt our new podcast format. So uh, some bells and whistles that we don't have currently, and uh, fanfare, please, no commercials. Next week, though, our final show of 2023, I'm toying with the idea of looking over the big stories of the last year, which uh, a lot of people do, but I suspect I'm going to look primarily at the biggest story from last year. Not the most reported, not the most commented on. In fact, I think an awful lot of people left and right just want to ignore it and pray that it goes away. And that is the instruction of Pope Francis to the Pontifical Theological Academy about upending the Church's traditional approach to theology. That is a, an error of, that it's just incalculably dangerous, and we're going to talk about that and more. My ruminations on transgenderism and the Eighth Commandment, uh, and also share some of what uh, Bishop Schneider has to say in his new catechism on that, uh, on that very topic, although that, I believe, he put under the Fifth Commandment. So we'll talk about all of that and more when we come back. In the meantime, I just want to say thank you for listening. As always, uh, have a very Merry Christmas. And I will look together or look forward to seeing you in the in the week in between Christmas and New Year's when we come back with more No Nonsense Catholic. And God bless you and your family.